Hello and good afternoon. My name is Michael Allison. I'm privileged to speak to you all about high flow nasal cannula. The title of my talk is Using High Flow Like a Pro. I'd like to specifically thank Mike McCurdy and the Maryland CC Project for inviting me to give this Thursday lecture to you all. By way of disclaimers, I don't have any conflicts of interest. I will be talking about two proprietary devices, the OptiFlow by Fisher Paykel and the Vapotherm device at various points during this lecture. I became interested in high-flow nasal cannula a number of years ago during my residency and fellowship training because we were using it a lot. I had no idea about it. I didn't learn about this in medical school. And in looking through some of the literature, it didn't seem like we had a lot of evidence to support our use of the product. Something that had been used in pediatrics was gaining traction in bronchiolitis, but was being used often in the adult population to assist with oxygenation. So it became clear that we were sort of putting the cart before the horse here. So over the years, I've been digging deep into the, to the literature, and I think now we've started to get some evidence to support our practice and to inform how we use high-flow nasal cannula and use it effectively and appropriately. So right now, the, the horse is maybe carrying the cart. In the past 15 years, we've had an explosion of literature related to high-flow nasal cannula. This slide is representative. This is not using any systematic review means, but I just plugged in high-flow nasal oxygen, high-flow nasal cannula into PubMed and just did some counting and saw how many articles were published on the topic through the past 15, 16 years. And as you see, uh, the past six years specifically, we've had an explosion in the number of publications and in calendar year 16, we're already reaching the point of the number of publications that we had last year. So an explosion of literature right now. We're getting new information almost monthly on the topic, and hopefully this lecture will serve as a, as a review on what we should be doing with high-flow nasal cannula. So what are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about what is high-flow, We'll be discussing some concepts about oxygen dilution. We'll be talking about when to use high-flow nasal cannula. And then, of course, when not to use high-flow nasal cannula, or my, my no-nos when we're putting high-flow nasal cannula on our patients. Let's start with discussing the low-flow versus high-flow. On the left, you see a typical nasal cannula. On the right, a reservoir a bag mask, a non-rebreather. The left nasal cannula was considered the low-flow device, and something like a non-rebreather was able to give higher oxygen concentrations. And in the literature, it's even been talked about higher flow devices because you can give up to 15 liters, maybe even a little bit more, through the non-rebreather. The nasal cannula was limited to much lower flow rates through, through the nose. But our paradigm has really shifted. Uh, when we're talking about low flow, these are both low flow devices. When we're talking about high flow, we're talking about these proprietary devices that get really high flow rate, humidified, heated, 
It's 37 degrees Celsius. They're 100% relative humidity and the, the gas is conditioned. Uh, here you see on the bottom of the screen that dome-like structure is going to be the, uh, the conditioner um, where gas is, is heated and, and humidified before it goes to the patient. These devices can deliver FiO2 of 0.2 to 1 to 1. It's giving really high flow rates. So these devices can give FiO2 of 21% to up to 100% at flows of 20 to 60 liters per minute. Now the Fisher-Pecal system goes up to 60 liters per minute. The Vapotherm system can go up to 40 liters per minute. Uh, so these are, de are delivering really high flow rates, not the two, four, six liters that we're used to with regular nasal cannulas. On the top right, you're seeing a flow meter that's going up to 60 liters per minute. Uh, the device in the middle with the digital screen is showing you the FiO2. You see the green cord going into the high flow device. It's bringing wall oxygen. Remember that wall oxygen is 100% oxygen. It is pure oxygen coming out of, out of the wall. And right in front of that oxygen is a cylindrical device that allows some air to come in and there's some room air entrainment of oxygen into this device. Other devices allow medical oxygen, medical air, the yellow ports in the rooms, to come into the device and you can really specifically determine how much FiO2 through blending the two different gases and it goes through through the blender. So before it gets to the patient, this is high flow, heated, humidified, fully conditioned, high FiO2s are possible, high flows. So that's the concept, that's the nuts and bolts. But physiologically, what is happening when we place high flow nasal cannula on our patients? How does it work? I want to start with the concept of oxygen dilution because I think this is the biggest concept when it comes to high flow nasal cannula. And in order to understand oxygen dilution, we need to understand inspiratory flow demand. So I want you all with me to, on three, take a breath in and hold. One, two, three. Inhale. So hold that right there. So that's your inspiratory flow loop right there on the bottom. Remember, this is inverted. So that's your inspiratory flow loop. Now exhale. Good. So you guys did great. So that's your expiratory flow loop. Remember, you're going to have you know, peak expiratory flow early and then it slows off. Your exhalation is going to be much longer than inhalation. So what we want to talk about is the point on the curve right here, your max inspiratory flow. And if you can imagine that this line is, is changing, the slope is changing of this line. So there's a mean inspiratory flow somewhere along that line as well. So when we have patients, when, when you all sitting here listening to to lecture are having quiet resting breathing, you're developing inspiratory flow, peak inspiratory flow rather, of 15 to 30 liters per minute. So peak inspiratory flow, 13, uh, 15 to 30 liters per minute. And then you have patients in respiratory distress where they can get up to 60 to 180 liters per minute peak and somewhere around 70 liters per minute as a mean inspiratory flow. 
So the flow demands for patients who are in respiratory failure are huge. They're really significant. And as you were probably taught at some point in your medical training, medical school, early residency, is that the nasal cannula device can deliver FiO2s that can get somewhere in the 45% range. This is one rule of thumb that I've learned, and if you search on the internet, you'll find these tables where if you put somebody on one liter per minute of nasal cannula oxygen, you're approximating an FiO2 of 25%. And then for each liter per minute you increase, you're also increasing the FiO2. This happens to use the rule of force going up with each liter per minute increase. And this is really based upon averages and just sort of a bunch of, of baloney because someone who's on two liters nasal cannula breathing 16 times per minute versus someone on two liters nasal cannula breathing 30 times per minute, those are different patients. They're going to get different amounts of oxygen. They're going to have different FiO2 because they're breathing in a lot of room air in addition to those two liters of nasal cannula. So let's pictorially describe what's going on when you're putting in a nasal cannula and this concept of oxygen dilution and room air entrainment. So you have the, the yellow little room airs and you have the uh, gray oxygens. And in a regular nasal cannula, you're going to get oxygen in through the nasal cannula, but around the cannula, you're also going to get some room air sneaking around. So what you're actually inspiring, your fractional inspiration, is going to be diluted by the room air. And that's going to depend upon your inspiratory workload and your respiratory rate. But take that little nasal cannula, put a big nasal cannula in, and then see what happens. You might have some element of room air entrainment, but for the most part, you're going to get just the fractional inspired oxygen that you're delivering through that device because the flow rate is so high it's meeting all of your inspiratory demand. So the oxygen is not diluted out in high flow nasal cannula like it is in our ordinary nasal cannula and you can deliver high FiO2s fairly reliably. So high flow reduces the room air entrainment. The room air entrainment that we're seeing with nasal cannulas, the room air entrainment that we're seeing with venturi masks, the room air entrainment that we're seeing with non-rebreathers. So those devices are limited in the amount of FiO2 that you can deliver. High flow nasal cannula can really get you 90% up to 100% really close to those high FiO2s because of the amount of flow it's able to deliver. Let's talk about another concept related to high flow nasal cannula and this is one that comes up in every review article every discussion of high flow nasal cannula you may have all seen lectures on this where high flow nasal cannula is called CPAP light or something so let's talk about this positive pressure that's developed with high flow nasal cannula and sort of do a, a tiny bit of myth busting depicted here is typical mouth closed breathing high flow nasal cannula intact and a number of studies have tried to measure the pressure that's delivered to the posterior oropharynx. What they've done in these studies is, is they take a device, they put it in through the nose, they put it in back, it sits sort of right in front of the uvula in the posterior oropharynx, and that's a pressure transducer. They put in a high flow nasal cannula into the nares and then deliver oxygen flow rates. They'll deliver flow of 
20 liters per minute, 30 liters per minute, 40 liters per minute, all the way up to, to 60. And to synthesize all of the studies, put them together, you're averaging out with a positive pressure of about two to six centimeters of water of positive pressure. Some had a little bit higher values than that, but this is pretty much the reliable mean of what you're getting with mouth-closed breathing. And note that it's flow-dependent. So in a lot of these studies, what they reproducibly found, if you give 20 liters per minute, you may get a little pressure. You give 40 liters per minute to that same person, you're going to get higher pressure. You give 60 liters per minute, it's going to go even higher. So the pressure that's delivered is dependent upon the amount of flow. And then folks got a little bit savvy and decided, well, we're putting in a nasal cannula. A lot of people are going to have their mouth open. So what happens with mouth open breathing? Well, as you see, that pressure in the posterior pharynx falls way off. You're maybe getting a centimeter of, of water of pressure in the posterior oropharynx. What we really want to know is not these oropharyngeal pressures, that's where you're getting a lot of the flow, but what's transmitted down through the tracheobronchial tree to the alveoli. So one group studied patients who had tracheostomies who were going to have their tracheostomies removed. And what they did was they, they plugged up the tracheostomy stoma, but put in a pressure device into the trachea, put the patients on high flow nasal cannula through their nose and measured the pressures. They found that on average, they were getting about two centimeters of water down and through the trachea. Their flow rates were modest. They were in the 30 to 40 liter per minute range. So you are seeing some tracheal pressure. It is positive. There is a difference between the beginning of expiration and end expiration. So the pressures are highest at end expiration. And what that means is this is not a continuous positive airway pressure. This is not a, a PEEP. This is a pressure that actually changes throughout the respiratory cycle and reaches a maximum at the end of expiration. So we're seeing positive pressure. We're seeing it go into the trachea, but it is really quite modest. The numbers with mouth closed breathing, I don't think simulate what is actually happening to our patients when we put this device on. They open their mouth, they're drinking, they're eating. Some people have tried to quantify, some investigators are looking at end expiratory lung volume. End expiratory lung volume can be estimated using empedics tomography. So this is an easier way of measuring it than using plethysmography or nitrogen watch out. So total lung volume is related to impedance tomography. So by extension, if you put high flow nasal cannula on, and if there are changes in the impedance thresholds, then there should be some increase in lung volumes. And these increases in lung volumes are hypothesized to be end expiratory lung volumes representing the FRC. So what happens in the studies that look at this? There's an increase in your end expiratory lung volume estimate of the functional residual capacity, the FRC, of about 25%. So maybe this positive pressure that is delivered is increasing recruitment, is improving our FRC, and is giving us some physiologic benefit to the alveolar level. So for the pressure, remember that we're generating only low positive airway pressures. 
that there is a flow-dependent pressure situation where higher flows are giving you the, the best positive pressure. And there is some evidence that there's increasing the FRC with these devices. Let's go to our third concept. So we've talked about oxygen dilution. We've talked about positive pressure. We're going to talk about washout. So think about the dead space, the tracheobronchial tree. You've got all of this CO2 in the dead space here of our, of our trachea and our proximal airways. You place high-flow nasal cannula in. You're delivering high flow of continuous oxygen. And this CO2 is washed out and replaced with oxygen. So what happens on subsequent breaths is breathing efficiency improves. At least that's the theory. That oxygen washout is going to improve the efficiency of our breathing. So maybe that's why our respiratory rate decreases, why patients become suddenly more comfortable. All these things that we see when we put on high-flow nasal cannula, maybe it's from the dead space washout. There have been some studies looking at transtracheal gas insufflation of oxygen and comparing that to high-flow nasal cannula, and you're getting similar washout of the dead space using high-flow nasal cannula as you are when you're putting a needle through the trachea and instilling gas into the, into the trachea directly. So we've got a non-invasive way of doing it without the risk of morbidity to wash out this dead space. Lastly, let's talk about the conditioning of the air. So I already alluded to this earlier. Air is going to be conditioned to 37 degrees at 100% relative humidity. So if you take sample calculations that have been done in some of the literature that I've read and take somebody with a minute ventilation of about 6 liters per minute, the work of conditioning that air when it passes through the nasopharynx, when it's warmed and humidified, taking that room air, warming it, humidifying it, is about 150 calories, little calories, not the big food calories, but little calories per minute. So maybe there's some energy expenditure in conditioning, conditioning gas that we remove by using high-flow nasal cannula. So that work of breathing, that energy expenditure is improved when we precondition the gas. There's not good evidence in adults on whether this is actually happening or not, but when they've looked at the use of high-flow nasal cannula, in the pediatric population, they've seen that uh, kids who use high-flow nasal cannula actually have higher weight gain than matched cohorts that don't use high-flow nasal cannula. So maybe we're reducing their energy expenditure, allowing them to, to gain weight. So the same might be true of adults. So we have conditioned gas that's going to be humidified, allowing for secretion management as well as the possibility of reducing our energy expenditure. So now that we've talked about the concepts of oxygen dilution, positive pressure of the dead space washout, and of conditioning of the gas, we know the theory behind why high-flow nasal cannula is likely to benefit our patients. But who does it benefit? When are we going to use it? And here's where the literature of the past five, six years is really helping us to decide how we're going to use this in, in patients. And I sort of compare the literature of high-flow nasal cannula right now to reading about BiPAP and CPAP from 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, where you're finding 
investigators looking at the use of non-invasive ventilation in all sorts of things. Right now we're seeing high-flow nasal cannula being used in almost every sort of clinical circumstance to see if we can uh, justify its use for these patients. So you've seen it in peri-intubation, hypoxic respiratory failure after extubation, the delivery of aerosol to patients in status asthmaticus, lung transplant, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, cardiac surgery, and sleep apnea. So every sort of disease that might need supplemental oxygen is being studied. And again, you know that this literature is booming and we're going to expect more literature to come out to help inform our practice. But right now, let's go through a couple of the big studies and what we need to know to change and inform our practice right now. And let's talk about acute hypoxia to start. So the Maryland CC project, you all are a pretty savvy group, so I'm certain that most of you, if not all of you, know about the Florale trial. This was a, a big trial on high-flow nasal cannula. It came out in the New England Journal just last year. And they looked at 300 patients. It was randomized, controlled, and they did a three-arm study where they were looking at high-flow nasal cannula versus standard oxygen therapy versus non-invasive ventilation. And what they were looking is they were looking at the primary endpoint of intubation, and they also had some secondary endpoints of mortality, which we'll look at. So again, a three-arm study, 100 patients per group, looking at an endpoint of intubation, intubated patients disappear. So you see that 38% of patients with high flow were intubated. Non-invasive is about 50%. Oxygen therapy is a little bit in the middle. The numbers look different, but statistically they were not. So again, you get the idea that maybe if you had enormously large sample sizes, that you may have had a difference shown here. But to do a three-arm study, 100 patients per group, it's really hard to statistically find that difference. But what they did find in a secondary endpoint, a priori, they said that they were going to look at mortality, 90-day mortality. You look at the three groups again, high-flow nasal cannula, standard oxygen therapy, and non-invasive ventilation. So patients who died go away, and you see a difference here. High-flow nasal cannula had 12% mortality standard oxygen highest and non-invasive in the middle. And there was a significant difference right at the 0.05 threshold. So we're seeing no decrease in intubations. But if you do a secondary analysis and you look at the subgroups, the article does say that a P to F ratio of less than 200. So if you find the patients with the worst oxygenation, a P to F less than 200, and you give them high-flow nasal cannula, that there is a decrease in intubations amongst the group. So you have to take that with a grain of salt. You have to wonder if that's a, a real finding or not. So intubations not decreased in a subgroup looking at the most severe P to F less than 200. There may be some decrease in, in the number of intubations. And yes, they're finding a decrease in mortality, a secondary endpoint, 90-day mortality, so you have to wonder whether we're helping our patients. And this decrease in mortality, this 90-day decrease in mortality, is what got the Florale trial into the New England Journal and got all of us talking about the use of high-flow nasal cannula. Who were the patients? Who were they using high-flow nasal cannula in, in the Florale trial? 75% of them had community-acquired pneumonia, a smaller fraction with some immunosuppressed pneumonia, by far, 
all of these patients had single organ failure, they had lung failure, they had hypoxic respiratory failure without shock and without significant comorbidities. They excluded hypercapnic respiratory failure from the get-go. They excluded cardiogenic pulmonary edema. So our patients with CHF with volume overload, our patients with COPD and hypercapnia, these patients were excluded for the, from this trial. They weren't even investigated. So we're looking at the potential decrease in mortality at 90 days in these pneumonia patients. We're not seeing a decrease in intubations, maybe a signal in the most severe patients there is a decrease in the percentage of intubations. So whenever you have a study where you're trying to extend an oxygen delivery therapy, you're worried about this debate of early versus late. We've had this debate in lots of settings versus goal-directed therapy early versus late versus PCI or early versus late for various things. So now that for non-invasive ventilation, uh, post-extubation, early versus late, are we delaying extubation? So we're really attuned to not wanting to delay intubation and possibly cause harm. So one group in intensive care med published a trial where they, they looked at high flow nasal cannula therapy, delaying intubation and increasing mortality. So that title tells you the findings, right? They looked at 175 patients. They looked at them retrospectively in their ICU. And they looked at patients and they, they arbitrarily defined them as early versus late failure. So these are only patients that failed. And they looked at early failure before 48 hours and late failure after 48 hours. And what they found was a significant increase in the mortality rate amongst the patients that failed and went on to require intubation in the late group. So again, these are patients that are failing high flow nasal cannula and are getting intubated. And the ones that were intubated in a delayed fashion are showing higher mortality in a retrospective study. So this raised a lot of eyebrows and folks were really concerned about the use of high flow nasal cannula. Some of the criticism in the commentary is that this late group actually was intubated on a, a median of five days after the institution of high flow nasal cannula. So are we waiting for too long? Was the horse out of the barn? Did we delay too long for these patients? Should they have possibly been intubated earlier? So we'll need to watch this. We'll need to be cognizant of this with, with our patients because we don't want to have increased mortality from delaying a standard therapy, which is intubation for hypoxic respiratory failure. The late group had a better PaO2 to start. So as you imagine, they have better PaO2, they get high-flow nasal cannula, they're able to potentially last longer on high-flow nasal cannula because they're less sick to start with, and then they fail late. So just an interesting finding amongst these, these groups. When you're looking at failure and we want to talk about failure, we want to be able to predict the failure. We don't want the patients to fail on day five. We want to know and be able to predict the patients who are going to have success with high-flow nasal cannula if we're using this routinely in hypoxic respiratory failure. How are we going to predict failure? Just know that if you're looking at the trials, about 25% of patients who go on high-flow nasal cannula for acute hypoxic respiratory failure are going to fail. So let's look at the study from 2011 intensive care med. 
the beneficial effects of humidified high-flow nasal oxygen in critical care patients, a pilot study. So this is a study that was looking at the effects of high flow, but they also looked at the rates of failure, and they found that three items in their cohort predicted failure. They found that after two hours of high-flow nasal cannula, failure could be predicted if patients had a higher respiratory rate than when they started, if there was thoracoabdominal dyssynchrony that persisted and wasn't reversed by the high-flow nasal cannula, and if they had a lower PaO2, either the PaO2 itself or the PF ratio. And this is a little bit of a no-brainer, uh, but they put a timeline on it, and they studied it, and they published it. So patients who are on high-flow nasal cannula, who at two hours are worsening with the respiratory rate, worsening oxygenation, if they're having work of breathing that's increased, that's manifested by thoracoabdominal dyssynchrony, these patients are more likely to fail high-flow nasal cannula. So folks are trying to look at ways to get famous with the uh, use of high-flow nasal cannula and predicting failure. So the way to get famous, uh, name an index after yourself. So the ROCKS index, and it's not, not named after any, any person. It's for respiratory rate and oxygenation. So this ROCKS index is something that's just emerged. This was a, a study from the Journal of Critical Care and it is a, an investigational study where they looked at patients and they tried to determine which factors would predict failure. They found that if you took the SATs divided by the FiO2, so not a P to F ratio, but an S to F ratio, and divided that by the respiratory rate, that if your value is greater than 4.88, that's going to predict success and the use of high-flow nasal cannula. What they found is that they were able to implement this at the 12-hour mark. So patients in their cohort actually lasted on high-flow nasal cannula often to 12 hours. Only about 10% failed prior to the 12-hour mark. So perhaps these patients were, were less sick than the prior cohort where we're able to determine failure at two hours. This is, again, five years later, high-flow nasal cannula is more available. So perhaps a, a less sick group. But we're using this ratio to try and predict failure. And greater than 4.88 is what they found. It had sensitivity in the mid-70s, a specificity in the mid-70s, a positive likelihood ratio of about 2.5, and a negative likelihood ratio of about 0.5. So a positive likelihood ratio of 2.5, that's about the same likelihood ratio as the Rapicello breathing index from uh, Tobin and Yang. So if you're doing your RISB in, in the morning when you're looking at patients for potential extubation and you're saying that their Rapicello breathing index is less than 105, they have a good chance of succeeding, you're using that same likelihood ratio that they're, they were able to get from the ROCKS index. So it's not perfect. Sensitivity and specificity are not in the 90s, but it might be something to help us to help decide at that 12-hour mark if we have somebody on high-flow nasal cannula that sort of looks okay, let's quantify it, let's see, should we try and intubate this patient early and bite the bullet, or should we let it ride? So that's something that came out of a derivative study. It hasn't been tested in a uh, cohort yet, so we'll have to take a look at that and see what comes of the ROCKS index.
big topic to talk about, getting a lot of press right now, and possibly changing practice in a lot of ICUs, is the use of high-flow nasal cannula in patients after extubation. So, 2014, in the Blue Journal, there was a really novel article talking about high-flow nasal cannula versus Venturi mask after extubation, and they looked at about 100 patients. They prospectively randomized this trial, and what they found was that at 48 hours, looking at the P to F ratio, they found a better P to F ratio with high-flow nasal cannula versus Venturi mask. Okay, that's their primary outcome. They found better oxygenation with nasal high flow for the amount of del delivered FiO2. That's sort of expected. But a secondary endpoint was the reintubation rates. Here you see some of the variables, the sort of clinical physiologic variables, the P to F ratio, time, uh, the SATs, the PaCO2, and the respiratory rate. The black line represents nasal high flow. The uh, gray line is representing the Venturi mask. So you're seeing a better P to F ratio starting at about 24 hours. You see the, the stars indicating statistical significance as those two lines diverge with time. Looking at SATs, you're almost getting an immediate divergence in the SATs, less desaturation with the high-flow nasal cannula group. The PaCO2 not statistically different and the respiratory rate statistically lower by about four to five breaths per minute using high-flow nasal cannula, something we're seeing in our clinical practice every day when we put on high-flow nasal cannula. But then they looked at reintubation. So high-flow nasal cannula on the left, the Venturi mask group on the right, they found 8% reintubation in this high-flow nasal cannula group versus 35% reintubation in the Venturi mask group statistically significant, huge difference, and potentially practice changing. The patient population in this study was a mix of medical patients. They did have a high number of trauma patients, so it was a mixed cohort, relatively sick. They didn't exclude a lot of patients. It was just whoever they were extubating, they put on high-flow nasal cannula, or they randomized them to Venturi. My problem with this study is that that reintubation rate in the Venturi group is rather high. When we're talking about typical reintubation rates for our patients, I think we're usually discussing 15 to 20 percent historical reintubation rates. So 8 percent in the high flow nasal cannula group is less than that, but comparing it to a control group of 35 percent may be misleading. And there have been lots of studies in the critical care literature, I don't have to name them, where the historic control group of a major study has had a higher than expected morbidity or mortality when compared to the intervention and latter studies didn't show that same difference. So I would be careful with this study. The control group reintubation rate is high, but it's a really interesting, really thought-provoking. And other people thought it was thought-provoking. So this study was in a way duplicated, but almost in a way to really test the benefits of high-flow nasal cannula. So this is something that came out of JAMA in March of this year, looking at post-extubation high-flow nasal cannula versus conventional oxygen in low-risk patients. So they're not taking all comers like that prior study from the Blue Journal. These are low-risk patients only. Much larger sample size of 527 patients, 
prospectively evaluated multi-center. And when I say low risk, these patients were really low risk. I'll talk to that point in a moment. They received 24 hours of high-flow nasal cannula after extubation. The prior study I failed to mention, those patients received 48 hours of high-flow nasal cannula after extubation. So if they were on the Venturi mask, they got Venturi mask. If they got high-flow nasal cannula, they got 48 hours. In this study, conventional oxygen for one group and 24 hours of high-flow nasal cannula for the other group. Their outcome, they looked at 72-hour reintubation. Comparing that with the, the study from 2011, they looked at 48-hour intubation. So this was taken out a day, which I, which I like because you're actually looking at 48 hours reintubation after the use of high flow. So 24 hours of high flow plus 72 hours after high flow, they're looking at a total of 72 hour reintubation after the endotracheal tube was removed. Here's that low risk group. So these patients were intubated for less than seven days. They were all fairly young. They had low Apache scores. CHF and COPD was excluded. They had simple weaning. They weaned on their first SBT and they were being extubated after passing the first spontaneous breathing trial. They didn't have hypercapnia. These patients weren't morbidly obese. Their BMIs were all less than 30. They didn't have secretions. They were suctioned only twice in the preceding eight hours. They all had good coughs. So these is a low risk group of patients. These are the patients that we're extubating right now that are no brainers. We see them in the morning, they pass their breathing trial and we say extubate, put them on nasal cannula, wean the nasal cannula to, to room air even. These are the patients that were studied for high flow nasal cannula. And the results, pretty impressive. 5% reintubation amongst the high flow nasal cannula group. Conventional oxygen therapy reintubation rate was 12%, that number that we're used to seeing. But again, this is a really low risk group. The patient population that was studied in these ICUs contained a lot of post-surgical patients and neurocritical care patients. So when you exclude patients that are reintubated for mental status changes or reintubated for OR and surgery, you're seeing the same difference. The high-flow nasal cannula group reintubation rate was about 1%, conventional, conventional oxygen therapy about 7 to 8%. So for just respiratory failure, the reintubation rates for high-flow nasal cannula was incredibly low. For conventional oxygen therapy, was lower than what we think of, but was around 7-8% for these patients. And this difference is, st is statistically significant. Again, if you exclude those surgical and neuro patients, the difference holds up and is statistically significant. For those of you who want to see more of the Kaplan-Meier de depiction, you see the reintubation percentage with hours after extubation. Almost immediately, the two lines diverge, and the high flow therapy has a lower reintubation rate than conventional therapy, extending starting at 24 hours and extending out to 72 hours. And again, that line there depicts that at 24 hours, until 24 hours, these patients were kept on high flow nasal cannula, and after that, the high flow therapy was stopped. The investigators also comment that after 72 hours, they followed up all the patients in the cohort 
and no patients were intubated after the 72-hour mark. So zero intubations after 72 hours. So before we get into practical tips, with regards to this last study, I think it's a very interesting study, but it's a little bit of a scary study for me. Because what this study is essentially saying is that, and if this data is to be believed, that every patient that we extubate in the ICU should be extubated to high-flow nasal cannula to prevent the risk of 72-hour reintubation. Every patient. So that routine post-op patient, post-op day two or three, the 40-year-old that maybe got reintubated in, in the PACU because of the failure of adequate reversal of anesthesia, that patient should wean to high-flow nasal cannula. Somebody intubated and extubated on ICU day four for a community-acquired pneumonia, they should be extubated to high-flow nasal cannula. So this is really something that may completely change our practice of extubation. And I think we have to have a dialogue about this because if we're keeping patients on high-flow nasal cannula for 24 hours after extubation, that's not somebody I feel comfortable downgrading right away. I'm not going to be downgrading them 24 hours after extubation, which is the, the routine practice. I might wait another 24 hours. So are we going to increase our length of stay in the ICU? Are we going to overload our step-down units or our IMCs with patients who are on high-flow nasal cannula? Are we going to downgrade everybody from ICU to IMC and stop downgrading patients from the ICU to the floor? I think there are a lot of downstream effects that may come from this study that are going to have to be discussed, fleshed out, uh, because this is a really interesting study. The, the data are pretty convincing, and high-flow nasal cannula may be the post-extubation oxygen delivery of choice from here on out. So let's move into practical tips. Practical tips for the use of high-flow nasal cannula. Start the flow at 60 liters per minute. So I say if you're starting high flow, start with the highest flow that's available to you. Some devices can only go up to 40 liters per minute. Start that flow at the highest level. And what you're doing is you're essentially reducing the amount of oxygen dilution. You're giving them the best increase in their FRC and whatever positive pressure that you're able to give. You're giving them the maximum amount of therapy at the highest flow. When we talk about non-invasive ventilation, if we're putting patients on non-invasive ventilation through CPAP or BiPAP, a lot of times the mantra is start low, go slow, put them on five of PEEP, put them on pressure support of five, slowly titrate that up. Patients may not be compliant. They may have a difficult time breathing with that positive pressure. Patients who take high-flow nasal cannula don't have those problems. They can instantaneously start with highest flow and tolerate it incredibly well. So I say practical tip number one, start the flow at the highest level available. And then titrate your FiO2 to sats in the in the low to mid 90s. You don't need to have their sats at a at hundred percent. And what this allows you to do is to determine exactly what amount of FiO2 the patient's actually requiring. So keeping that flow high and that FiO2 at whatever the patient wants prevents what happens in clinical practice right now, which is the flow FiO2 uniformity. So when I'm seeing patients and they're starting on, on high flow, a lot of times I see respiratory therapy starting them at 50-50, or they're at 40 liters, 40%. There's this uniformity 
of the amount of flow and the amount of FiO2 that happens more often than not. And I think that we should really get into the habit of starting with the highest flow and taking that oxygen and only providing whatever the, the patient requires. Third step, third practical tip is assess your patient. So before reading some of the, the newer trials, when I was developing this lecture a few months ago, I would have said, look at rate of breathing, the respiratory rate. Look at the pattern of breathing, the thoracoabdominal asynchrony. Look at the PF ratio. And if those are trending in the wrong direction, your patient is likely to fail. So these are the predictors of, of failure. And if you want to believe the, the rocks, if you want to put a number to it, maybe you can change this practical tip number three to check that ROPS index at 12 hours. If you've got that patient who's sort of on the, on the borderline, look at their SAT to FiO2 ratio, divide it by the respiratory rate, see if they're, they're improving. Look at the pattern of breathing, look at the patient clinically. Again, these are all the same variables. We're looking at oxygenation, we're looking at respiratory rate, we're looking at the pattern of breathing. So if any of these are worsening with the use of high-flow nasal cannula or after the use of high-flow nasal cannula, consider early intubation for these patients because these are patients that might fail high-flow nasal cannula. Moving on to my, my no-nos or the pitfalls section, let me be emphatically clear about this, that high-flow nasal cannula is not for COPD. Now, if you look at some of the physiologic studies on high-flow nasal cannula, a number of them say it, it raises CO2. A couple of them say that there's no change in CO2, and you've got studies that say that it lowers the CO2 level. High-flow nasal cannula has not been systematically reviewed or investigated in patients with acute exacerbations of COPD. This is inappropriate therapy considering that we have an excellent therapy that prevents intubations and that prevents mortality in acute exacerbations of COPD. And that is non-invasive ventilation, specifically BiPAP. So for our patients who are coming in with hypercapnic respiratory failure, go to non-invasive ventilation. Don't reach for high flow just because it's more convenient or you think the patient's going to tolerate or they look like somebody that don't, won't tolerate the mask, use the non-invasive ventilation. Use whatever tips and tricks to get them to use non-invasive ventilation because at this point, using high-flow nasal cannula for COPD is not evidence-based, it's not savvy, it's not useful, and I think I made my point abundantly clear. No high-flow nasal cannula for COPD. So I'll soften a little for pitfall number two when I say not for pulmonary edema. So I, I truly believe it's not for COPD. Not for pulmonary edema, I'll say not right now. Evidence is building. We don't have strong evidence for use of high-flow nasal cannula in pulmonary edema, but I think we might get there. So what's the evidence now? So high-flow nasal cannula in a study has shown to decrease the variability of the IVC on ultrasound. So presumably, if you're giving high-flow nasal cannula and you're decreasing the IVC variability, you are increasing intrathoracic pressure and decreasing the preload. So by extension, you can think that that is benefiting patients with, uh, with CHF and acute cardiogenic pulmonary edema. But all the major trials that we talked about, 
they're all excluding patients with acute cardiogenic pulmonary edema. So I don't think it's ready for prime time. This is something that may change. This is something that I have used as a backup when my patients with cardiogenic pulmonary edema just cannot tolerate the non-invasive and are, and are taking it off um, while we're waiting for uh, hemodialysis or while we're waiting for our nitroglycerin to decrease the preload and afterload as well. So I will use it. It's not first line. So always reach for your CPAP or your BiPAP first and consider high flow nasal cannula, <clears throat> something that may change in future years and it might be a backup plan for the patient who just can't tolerate the mask. Avoid high flow nasal cannula in patients with pressors. So if you're looking at the studies and specifically these studies that look at failure and the randomized studies that are looking at use of high flow nasal cannula, they've excluded patients with shock. They're not using patients that are on vasopressors and patients who do have vasopressor use have organ failure are way more likely to progress to intubation than to tolerate the non-invasive ventil. I'm sorry, the, than to tolerate the high-flow nasal cannula and improve without intubation for their respiratory failure. So I would be very careful about the use of high-flow nasal cannula in the patients that's developing shock, progressing with shock, and these are patients in which I think it's a no-brainer to go ahead, intubate, mechanically ventilate early for their respiratory failure. Pitfall number four, the no-nos, beware of the 6100 or the 4100. This is the scenario where you're riding out the high-flow nasal cannula until it's maximum setting. The patient's on 60 liters or 40 liters of high-flow at 100% FiO2, and their sets are 91%, and their respiratory rate is in the high 20s. These are patients that make me incredibly nervous. These are patients that, in my experience, when I'm bringing them into the ICU where, where they've had high-flow nasal cannula in the IMC and they're getting worse, and I'm seeing them for the first time, and it's clear that they're in overt respiratory failure, these are patients that are extremely high risk for intubation. Their dead space isn't, isn't improved. They have a lot of desaturation risk during the induction of intubation. So these are patients that I'll actually bring over. I will put on non-invasive ventilation with BiPAP for about 10 or 15 minutes to give them high positive pressure with PEEP to try and recruit anything. Most of the time I'm able to get some recruitment into saturations of the mid to high 90s, but some of these patients just don't recruit and this intubation is really tricky. So I'd beware of riding out the high-flow nasal cannula until it's maximum settings. It makes your intubation tricky. It makes no room for, for error during your induction. So let me thank you all. Let's sum up a couple of concepts that we talked about today and what I hope you take home and take to the next shift when you're seeing patients and you're using high-flow nasal cannula. When you're put, putting someone on high-flow nasal cannula and initiating this therapy, go with the flow. Set a maximum flow. The maximum benefit of high-flow nasal cannula comes from the flow, from the oxygen washout, the positive pressure, uh, the uh, dead space washout, and the conditioning. So go with the flow whenever you're using this.
Be savvy in your use of high flow nasal cannula. This is an oxygen delivery device. This is meant to be used in patients with hypoxic respiratory failure. There's some evidence that maybe we are decreasing intubations in the most high risk patients. There's some evidence that we're improving mortality numbers. The evidence is going to mount further. We'll see more studies and we'll see how this fully informs our practice. But for right now, use it for patients in single organ failure, hypoxia. The perfect patient is going to be the patient with community acquired pneumonia who has low saturations. And my biggest pitfall, this is not replacing non-invasive ventilation, at least not yet. We are not using it in acute cardiogenic pulmonary edema. We're not using it in acute exacerbations of, of COPD. We've got excellent evidence, incredible evidence for the use of those therapies for pulmonary edema, for COPD. High flow nasal cannula doesn't replace that yet. We're going to use it for a different subset of populations, those patients with hypoxic respiratory failure. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure to, to be here. Thank you for your attention, and I'll pause and take any questions that you may have.